Coming to you from the AT&T Podcast Studio, this is Long Story Short. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Reporter Paul Munnies recently wrote about ongoing frustrations shared by many state lawmakers over funds to help private, religious-affiliated crisis pregnancy centers. The legislature provided about $3 million per year for those services under the Choosing Childbirth Act. Paul, give us a little background about that legislation. Yeah, so that bill first uh, was approved back in 2017, and it basically allowed the state to contract with a a vendor to then pass through money to private nonprofit uh, crisis pregnancy centers for for screening services for pregnant women and basically counsel them not to have an abortion. Uh, Now, of course, that was not funded at that time and uh, because there was some problems with the state budget. And so it wasn't until a couple years later until lawmakers finally funded it to the tune of about $3 million a year. Now, in some respects, your latest story is an update of one you did last year, right? That's right, yes. When the legislature was meeting last year, they had a similar bill that actually got to the same stage last year, uh, got to the, the House floor, uh, but never got a hearing. And so there, there was the similar concerns were still going on, and that, that was after the first year uh, of this this new vendor to kind of take, take over this program. And so they, they kind of were problems last time, and now it's still an ongoing problem right now. So what's the latest problem with the funding? Yeah, so it's basically the same problem. It's slowness on getting this money to the actual crisis pregnancy centers. Um, There is now almost about $8 million uh, sitting in the state account, and the vendor has been pretty slow to provide reimbursements to these crisis pregnancy centers. So what would the bill do? So Senate Bill 538 in this year's session um, would basically open this up to more than just one vendor and allow the State Department of Health to directly fund some other services as well, not just crisis pregnancy services, uh, services for pregnant women, including transportation options, mental health services, and basically allow those direct payments beyond just the middle person that's involved as a vendor. And who's supporting the bill? Well, I got some pretty big support by uh, um, Senate Pro Tem Greg Treat, who's a big fan of this program. Uh, also um, in the House, Representative Marcus McIntyre uh, is supportive of this as well. And the Health Department itself says that they recognize that the slowness pay- of payments is an issue and that they don't like this money just sitting in the state account and not doing anything. Now, uh, when the U.S. Supreme Court uh, overturned Roe v. Wade, how did that affect discussions around this bill? Yeah, so this bill specifically does not allow any kind of abortion uh, counseling or abortion-related services, which, of course, is kind of a moot point now with the state's law passed last year and then the Supreme Court decision last June that struck down Roe versus Wade and put that decision squarely into the state's hands. Um, now, because of that, um, there is somewhat probably less of a need for some of these crisis pregnancy centers as they exist now, but they still provide other uh, services to, to women beyond just uh, non-abortion counseling. Uh, you know, they provide diapers and formula for newborn uh, newborns and other help, clothes, clothing help as well. So there's still a need for those in many communities, and they've got pretty wide support across the state. It's just this one program is not really working very well. And what does the current vendor say about the legislation? Yeah, so we got in touch with them and we talked to them last year as well for the story. And they said, well, you know, 
they're hopeful that they can get to spending all the money that allocated this year and that, that basically they don't see any need to open this up to any other providers or any direct payments from the health department. And did the bill get past the latest legislative deadline? Yeah, so we did the story and then the deadline hit and this bill did not get a House vote on the floor. Uh, it was kind of mixed up and a whole bunch of stuff that was going on at the deadline between the House and the Senate Republicans and the governor over some education funding. A lot of stuff got caught in the mix. This appears to be one of them uh, and it will be technically alive at this point for next year's session. But at this point right now, I don't see any huge um, push to pass it right now. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. You can uh, read Paul's story on the Choosing Childbirth Act and getting it funded on our website, oklahomawatch.org. While you're there, you'll find all of Paul's other coverage of state government. Keaton Ross covers democracy for Oklahoma Watch. State senators and Governor Kevin Stitt have been feuding over the details of a proposed education package. Keaton's here to share the latest on what's going on at the Capitol and what Oklahomans can expect during the final weeks of the legislative session. Keaton, what's the disconnect between the Senate and Stitt? Uh, one of the main points of the, kind of the the feud disagreement between the Senate and Stitt has been uh a funding mechanism called the Oklahoma Student Fund uh, that would essentially be a, a pot of money that is is put in uh, by the state that would go out to school districts based in in the the mechanism of it is that it it would generally favor rural districts um, the the way it's set up uh, so that's been one of the main uh, points of contention uh, also teacher pay has been been another thing discussed uh, just some senators wanting wanting a little more than than what the House and, and Stitt's plan uh, covers right now. Now, the House is lined up behind Stitt on this, right? That's right. They, they passed a package last week uh, giving between two and five thousand uh, dollar raises for teachers, depending on their experience. Uh, it has that that tax credit system for for parents of private and homeschool students. Uh, along with that uh, student fund mechanism that that we just discussed. Now, but the Senate passed its own education package last week. How does it differ from the House's proposal? So they passed uh, five bills, I believe, last week separately. Uh, late on Thursday, uh, as it, as it was approaching a deadline last week, a uh, few differences from the the House plan. Uh, one is that their the way the House's bill is set up is that. Each part of it is kind of tied to the other part. Um, so in order to pass the teacher pay raise in the House version, you also need the the tax credit system. Um, the sentence plan doesn't work like that. Uh, it's five separate bills. Um, doesn't have that same student fund mechanism. Um, and, and the numbers on the teacher pay and, and some of the, the fine print on the, the eligibility for the, the tax credit is is different. Um, but one of the main differences is just the fact that it's in separate bills as opposed to one whole package. Now, after the Senate rejected Stitt's education plan last week, the governor vetoed more than 20 unrelated Senate bills. What sort of measures did he reject? Yeah, that that seemed to be kind of certainly a, a statement pushback from Stitt on on them not taking up his plan. Um, a few of the, the notable ones uh one was dealing with NIL deals with college athletes, kind of expanding the, the eligibility for that. 
that got a little bit of attention. Um, one of the main ones uh, was a veto on a bill that would extend funding uh, to OETA, uh, the statewide uh, PBS affiliate news network. Um, that that got a lot of attention and pushback. Um, so that that's that's now pending. Uh, could go back to the legislature for an override. Uh, we'll see on that. Well, what is the process for the legislature to override a veto? So in order for uh, most bills to get vetoed, you would need a, a two-thirds majority in both the Senate and the House. Uh, of course, the way the the, the composition of both chambers, uh, Republican supermajority. So if you get one party to align, the Republicans to align on a veto, uh, they can override that pretty easily. Um, but bills with an emergency clause, you would need uh, a little bit more three quarters majority. Um, so pretty, pretty high standard. Um, but if you get uh, the GOP to align on something in both chambers, it, it can get overridden. Now, uh, have the lawmakers attempted to override any of the vetoes so far? Uh, so as we're speaking on Tuesday morning, that that hasn't happened yet on on this latest round of, of vetoes. Uh, we'll have, you know, I guess about three more weeks, a little over three weeks from when we're speaking today. Um, the session is is set to they they have that time available by state law to continue on in, in the legislative session. So uh, certainly something to watch over the next couple of weeks. Now, last week, Stitt said he would veto any legislation from a senator who is unsupportive of his education policy. Is there any indication he's softened his stance on that? Yeah. So uh, late last week, very late last week, I think late Friday, I believe uh, he signed uh, 17 Senate bills. A handful of them were authors of bills that he rejected uh, just a few days earlier. Uh, so perhaps an indication that that he softened some and isn't going to to continue on this hardline stance. Um, but as we're speaking, it's still uh, it's still pending. It's still kind of a, a stalemate on this big proposed education package. Now, why is the education package uh, such a time sensitive issue? So it's projected uh, to be, you know, several million dollars, uh, 700, 800 million. Um, so obviously that's going to have a pretty big impact on the state budget um, in order for lawmakers to avoid a special session and get their work done in a timely way. Uh, they have to come to an agreement on the budget uh, with the governor's office uh, by Friday, May 26th, uh, which is just over three weeks from when we're talking. Um, so that's coming up relatively quickly. And, and the education part of it is a, is a big component. All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. You can read all of Keaton's coverage of uh, the Senate and the governor's veto of those 20 bills, um, along with uh, the look at those education proposals. That's all on our website at oklahomawatch.org. While you're there, be sure to sign up for Keaton's weekly newsletter, Democracy Watch. Ari Fife covers race and equity for Oklahoma Watch. In her latest story, she dug into the effects of the end of another emergency relief program for families and looked at how county leaders are considering addressing food insecurity. Ari, uh, tell us more about these pandemic era benefits. What did they do for Oklahoma families? 
Yeah. So during the pandemic, every household that received food stamps or SNAP received extra benefits each month. And that was because the federal government was trying to kind of alleviate some of these negative economic impacts from the pandemic. And the size of the increase depended on the size of the household, but overall, each household got at least 95 extra dollars a month. Um, And Food Bank of Eastern Oklahoma CEO Calvin Moore said that those benefits were what lifted a lot of Oklahomans out of poverty. Now, it, it sounds like those benefits made a big difference. So why did they come to an end? It was part of the national decision, um, and it was a compromise in Congress that um, made permanent this other pandemic era program replacing summer meals during the summers, or replacing school meals during the summers, Um And in order to make that happen, national legislators decided to cut these extra benefits three months earlier than was originally planned. And food access advocates kind of see that as unfortunate because they see both programs as being beneficial. Now, did you talk to any families that might be affected by that? What did they have to say? Yeah, so I talked with Melissa Moore, who's a woman who lives in um, Oklahoma City, And her benefits increased to more than $500 during the pandemic. And she got used to that over three years. And she said that it gave her a lot of extra um, security. She knew that she could, um, that the benefits would cover all of her food expenses each month. Um, But in March, they decreased by more than $200. And they actually dipped lower than they had been before the pandemic. And that's been really tough for her to adjust to. She's had to start using a disability check that she gets monthly for throat cancer on her groceries. And she's also um, had to start visiting food pantries again, which she hadn't had to do for three years. And are there more people like Melissa who are turning to food pantries now? Yeah. So some people might know that pantries were pretty consistently busy throughout the pandemic, but that demand has definitely continued and in some cases increased um, as a result of this change. I actually met Melissa at the Urban Mission, which is a food and resource center, and they've doubled the number of stores that they get donations from, and they're still kind of struggling to keep up with demand. Our urban mission is in Oklahoma City. What about other parts of the state? Are they feeling any of those effects? Yeah. So um, a food food access organization called Feeding America identified eastern Oklahoma as being one of the most food insecure for kids um, in the nation, actually. And that was before this change in benefits, but the the change has definitely hit that region pretty hard. Um, I talked with Deborah Carment, who runs the Muskogee Community Food Pantry out of a church in the town, and she said that um, her staff her staff saw a sixty percent increase in customers in March, and actually an increase even an even bigger increase in April. Um, and to cope with that, they've had to cut the number, cut the amount of food that they give each customer um, by almost half. Now, what's been the response outside of the food access organizations? Are local governments doing anything to address the need, for example? 
So I talked to officials in LaFleur County in eastern Oklahoma, Oklahoma County and Tulsa County. All three are still giving out pandemic relief money. And in LaFleur County, um, an official told me that no pantries have requested money yet. But Oklahoma County and Tulsa County are still are, are considering requests from food banks. And Tulsa County actually started a funding round focused on community organizations relatively early. And so they've already given some money to food banks, but Oklahoma County is just now starting that community focused round. And how can the community weigh in on all that? Yeah, so it really, um, the main way is through public comment in meetings um, of those counties that are considering requests from food banks. The Tulsa Board of Commissioners meets um, weekly and the Oklahoma County Board of Commissioners meets biweekly and their meetings are posted on their websites. But it's worth noting, too, that these aren't the only entities that are giving out pandemic relief money. So if anybody's interested in a particular level of government, whether that's a particular county or a particular city, they should look into kind of what their process is for giving out that money. All right. Well, thanks, Ari. You can read Ari's coverage of the end of this federal uh, food subsidy program uh, from the pandemic and all her other work on our website, OklahomaWatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This episode was recorded at the AT&T Podcast Studio. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.